0: Let's open our Bibles up now to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the most important uh, chapters in this fairly short letter, and uh, so therefore we're going to spend a little bit more time on this chapter than we do some of the others perhaps, but um, it'll be time well spent, I do believe, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter two, you recall, is really divided up into two parts. The first part speaks about our new position in Christ individually, and we spent quite a lot of time with that and there's one key idea in the first ten verses of this chapter. that key idea is the theological term grace, god's riches at christ 's expense." Sometimes people like to translate that unmerited favor uh, there's an acrostic uh, uh, that, well that god's riches at christ's expense, unmerited favor and then a more theological definition would be... All that God is free to do for mankind on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, don't forget that last part. On the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's key, and that actually was where we ended up last week with this phrase, the blood of Christ, that the the Gentiles had been brought near by the blood of Christ. It all comes back to that. It seems like in all of Christianity, it all comes back to the cross. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from from the 1800s, used to tell his students, not his his congregation, but the theological students that he had, that he attempted to bring every sermon back to the cross at one point or another. Every sermon that he gave intersected with the cross at one time or another. And that's significant. I think that's what the Bible does. Anytime the, the Scriptures call us to a certain behavior, somewhere in that passage... This, the, the writer of scripture from the human perspective, ministering under the power of the Holy Spirit, brings you back through the cross. It intersects with the cross somewhere. So that's the first half of the chapter. The idea, the concept that the, that the believer is set apart in Christ positionally, individually. We are all set apart into the body of Christ by grace through faith. We all get there the same way. We're all equally as lost. The first part of that chapter let us let us in on that fairly clearly. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not just some folks, the entirety of the people that he's talking to, both in the original audience and in the audience today. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Now listen, how dead do you have to be to be considered dead? I mean, medically it seems as though you're either dead or you're alive. There's not degrees of death. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that we all started off... In the same boat, we were all equally in need of a Savior. And that is so huge, because if Paul's going to call us to unity, and he is going to call us to unity, we've got to first understand that none of us earn or deserve this. And none of us us had it coming to us a little bit more than somebody else. That is huge, because as soon as we start thinking that we needed salvation, but we didn't need it quite as bad as she did, or I didn't need it quite as bad as he did, then we're never going to get grace. And we're never going to move forward in our spiritual life because grace is fundamental. Grace is one of the first things that we need to understand. So that's the first half of the chapter. But then in the second half of the chapter, Paul's going to speak about our new position in Christ corporately. And he lets us know that we're not the only ones in the body of Christ. Yes, I'm in the body of Christ. Yes, I'm in union with Christ. But so is everyone else who has ever trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, at least from the day of Pentecost on, at least in the church age. So we're all in this together. And I know that sounds like a real politically correct kind of thing to say, but it's a real biblical thing to say as well. We're all in the body of Christ together, and so therefore we should function in a unified way. So in the second half of the chapter, Paul divides this thing up fairly nicely into three different sections. The first section is the fact of our union with Christ, the fact that Jews and Gentiles have been brought into one body is is discussed in verses 11 through 13. We studied that last week. What we study, or at least begin to study tonight, the explanation of that union. Now, this is going to take us more than just one particular class. It may take us two to three classes. Ordinarily, I like to cover... Um, units of thought, this particular unit of thought was so short it's actually going to only be a phrase tonight, that's a little bit odd for us, but we're just going to cover a phrase, but it'll be a beginning of verse 14, the explanation of that union, and then in verses 19 through 22, the consequences of that union, now the union we're speaking about here is the union of Jews and Gentiles into the body of Christ, that was the key issue of Paul's day. In in the first century, particularly the first part of the first century, there was great animosity between Jews who came to Christ for justification and Gentiles who came to, to Christ for justification. It started off with Jewish animosity toward Gentile believers. But by the time we get to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it would appear as though the shoehead was on the other foot. And there was Gentile animosity toward Jewish believers. But either way, Paul says, that's wrong and it's got to stop because both Jew and Gentile are equal members of the body of Christ. Remember our study of Galatians some years back, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul, Paul gives a threefold explanation of this. He says, in Christ, he's speaking about the same thing, our, our position in Christ corporately and individually. But in Christ, remember he said there's no Jew or Gentile. Now he's elaborating on that here, and and Ephesians is written some years after the letter to the Galatians. In Christ there's no Jew or Gentile. But you remember what else he says? In Christ there's no male or female. In Christ there's no slave or free. Have you ever wondered why you use that trifold division? Well, the first division, in, in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, means there are no racial distinctions in the body of Christ. One's skin color, or one's cultural heritage, makes no difference at all as to one's importance in the body of Christ. But also, there's no gender differences in the body of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean there are no gender differences, but there are no gender differences with respect to our position in the body of Christ. Did you catch that? Then this doesn't mean that we throw out distinctions with regard to certain roles in the the body of Christ that were outlined for either male or female. There are certainly those kind of distinctions, but in, in regards to significance in the body of Christ... Male and female are perfectly equal. Both are created equal in the image of God. So to say there are gender distinctions would be inappropriate with regard to our position in the body. Do you see what I mean? Once one becomes a Christian, it doesn't mean you cease to be male or female. That's an absurdity and sometimes people try to take that and say, well, that Paul, can't, Paul is speaking nonsense here because that's an absurdity. No, not at all. But also, there's no, and there's no slave or free in the body of Christ. And this tells us that there are no economic distinctions in the body of Christ. Human beings have a pecking order, oftentimes, with regard to economic distinctions they did in the first century. You remember that when we studied the book of James. James was, was making sure people didn't, making sure local churches didn't save the choice seats for the person with the gold ring because they thought that that particular person could perhaps contribute more money to the effort. So let's give them a real good seat. Let's make sure we greet them. Let's make sure that, that we invite them out to coffee after, after this church service is finished. That that person who comes in, 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 in rags, so to speak, we're going to ignore them because they can't do anything for us. And we studied that in its context in James. In the body of Christ, there's no, there are no racial distinctions. There are no gender distinctions, and there are no economic distinctions. We're all in it together. Everyone has equal value before God because we were all equally lost. We all, we all got there the same way. And watch this. Christ had to pay the same penalty to get me in there as he did you. And he had the same, to pay the same penalty for you as he did somebody else that either goes to this church or another church. That you can't stand because you don't like their personality, you don't like the, the, way, the way they talk, you don't like what they do for a living, whatever it may be. You don't like where they take their vacations. I, I don't know what it might be, but whatever it is, the weirdo things that people come up with, why they can't stand another believer, those are inappropriate distinctions. Now We all have our tastes and, and values, that's, that's to, to be sure. But we're all in this body of Christ and we should function as one. Now, Jesus talked about this, and he put a few modifiers on it when he gave his upper room, actually right after the upper room discourse, and he said that he prayed that the Father would sanctify us all to set us all apart, but to set us all apart in the sphere of truth. So if we're all going to get along, we all need to have one standard, and that's the standard of the Word of God. When I talk to people who are, who are uh, talking about getting married, and they want any kind of counsel from me at all, one of the things that I always talk to them about is, if you're going to get married... And you're both believers because that's the only group that I would marry is a believer a believer. I have married two unbelievers, but I won't marry a believer and an unbeliever because I, I feel like that violates uh, the word of God. I can't violate my conscience on that. I've, I've uh, had people ask me to do that before. I got really, really upset when I wouldn't. Christian, Christian women have asked me to marry them to a non-Christian fellow, and I just can't do it. It violates my conscience and it violates the word of God. I, I can't do that. But one of the things I tell them is, you know, there are going to be difficult times, Oh, it's shocking sometimes, but but uh, yeah, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but yeah, there are difficulties in marriage. Even the best of marriages are going to have difficulties. You got two people with, with old sin natures, and and yeah, the two are one flesh, but sometimes those old sin natures tend to kind of fight once they get in there. But but one of the things I tell Christian couples is, are you willing, or at least ask Christian couples, are you willing when when the when the dispute comes along? Are you willing to settle it based upon a biblical standard, based upon a commonly accepted biblical standard? Are you willing to settle the discussion based upon that? And of course they both say yes, and then as as time goes on, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. In the heat of the battle, sometimes we forget what we had said we'd do ahead of time. But if we both agree that the Bible will be our starting point and our end point, then we've got a whole lot better shot at having a 50, 60 plus year marriage. So we see in the, in the body of Christ, Paul is telling us in chapter 2 that we are in union, or at least Jews and Gentiles are in union with one body. The fact of that we've already studied in verses 11 through 13, the explanation in verses 14 through 18, and the consequences in verses 19 through 22. The original audience that Paul wrote this to were, in Ephesus was probably made up of a majority of Gentiles. A majority of Gentiles. That's why I say it looks to me like when we study the letter to the Ephesians that it might very well be the Gentile believers here that are kind of on their high horse. So that's why this language that Paul is going to use and he used last time when he said, remember that you, formerly you Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Remember that word uncircumcision? Acrobustia. It was not a nice word. It was kind of a, it it was actually a fairly vulgar word that they were called. And, and Paul wants to say, listen, you're up on your high horse now, but remember back when? There was a time when you weren't up on your high horse. You came with some humility. And Paul's just saying, why don't you do that again? Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world? That's five things that are pretty, much, uh, pretty depressing if you didn't think that they were going to be remedied in any way. But now in Christ Jesus, you, have, you who were formerly far off have been brought near here's the transitional phrase that takes us to the next section, by the blood of Christ. You know what I call this? I call this the apostolic ace trump. Anybody play bridge? I know some of you do. There's nothing to ace trump, is there? You know, you can't tie with it. As far as I remember, I haven't played bridge in a long time, but I don't think you can even tie with an ace trump. You're going to win that hand if you've got the ace trump. And that's the apostolic ace trump. Anytime, anytime an apostle wants to really drive a point home, he pulls out the, the death that Christ died for us. End of discussion. No more whining, no more griping, no more mewing, whatever that is. No more more mewing. I hear it a lot of times. I might have to look that up in the dictionary. I'm sure it's bad, though. But but none of that. None of that at all. The death of Christ, end of discussion. Get with the program. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's pulling out that apostolic age, age trump, and he's saying, listen, Christ died for all of you. Now, get over these petty differences that you have and start working as one. Because you see, Satan's strategy is to divide and to conquer. To divide and to conquer. And if he can do that, then he feels like he's going to thwart the plan of God. Now, he's not going to do it in the end. But he can sure set it back, and he can set churches back. Now, this is for the body of Christ as a whole. But the truth is for the local church as well. A local a local church that is not unified... It's not going to be an effective local church. Now, this doesn't mean that all votes have to be unanimous, but it does mean this. It does mean after a vote is taken, for example, we've had votes in our board. Most of our votes, I'm going to say, have all been unanimous over the last many, many years. I think the ones that I can remember, every now and then there's one that's not. But you know one of the, and there's there's sometimes enthusiastic discussion about a, a, various, a various issues. But one thing I like about our board is that even if a vote's not unanimous if there's an objection by somebody once the decision is made to go forward in a certain direction everybody pulls in that same direction. You don't have someone say, well, I voted against that. I'm going to be a troublemaker from here on out. I'm going to make sure that doesn't get done. That doesn't happen. And that's not the way to, to operate in a church. Yes, voice, voice objection. But once the direction is set, you get with the program. Or if you just can't get with it, then find a church where you can get with the program. But don't stick around just to try to be troublemakers. I have many, 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 many friends in pastoral ministry. And I hear about this not at our church. I have to hear about it from other places. But I hear about this all the time, that there are people in churches that think that their spiritual giftedness is one of discouragement. I've never seen that gift in the Bible anywhere. It's just not there. And and to to try to thwart the efforts of others, don't do that. That's not a spiritual gift. So we need to make sure that, that we recognize that apostolic ace trump and we get with the program Last time we, we closed by saying this, once far off, now Gentile believers are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, in the, next, in the next phrase, and this is as far as we'll get tonight, is just this one short little phrase in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. Because of what Christ Did for us on the cross, and that goes back to verse 13. Again, that's the transitional phrase, by the blood of Christ. And you remember that term, blood of Christ, as it is used in the New Testament, is a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross. it It does include the physical death that He died, yes, but it includes that plus more. It includes everything that happened that day, to provide for our salvation. That's the way the New Testament writers use this phrase. And so after reminding us of what Christ did on the cross, he tells us that there is a peace between Jews and Gentiles, a reconciliation, if you will, between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. But, you know, I should say there is a peace in the body of Christ in principle. There is a peace in principle but Paul in this section is calling upon Jews and Gentiles to live in peace, not just in principle, but in practice. Two different things. Yes, in principle, Jews and Gentiles, and, and by, by means of significance in taking this to, a, to its legitimate extension, we're talking about everyone in the body of Christ. Jews and Gentiles just happened to be the situation at hand in Ephesus at that time. But we all are at, at peace in principle. But Paul, speaking for the Holy Spirit, speaking for God, is, is exhorting us to live in peace in practice. In other words, to live consistently with the principle. Now, where have we heard that before? That seems to come up over and over again. That was probably James's primary point, that we live consistently with what we know to be the truth. Now, this particular slide... It uh, shows the, the Greek text for this verse, and I want to show you something here that I think that will be helpful. The very first word is autos. Now, this is the word for he. Um, in, the, in, the, in Greek grammar, you don't have to have a, a personal pronoun like this. The, the, the verb, which is this word right here, esteem, the verb carries with it the, the he already. So th- it, is, it is unnecessary for the, this writer. This word is gar. This word actually goes first. It, this says, if we didn't have any of that, it says, he is the peace of us. Or he is our peace. Now, by putting this autos in the beginning of it, it, it does two things. Well, there's two ways it does this. First, by putting it at the beginning, it emphasizes the autos. And secondly, by bringing it there at all, it brings emphasis to the idea that he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. The emphasis is on he, Jesus Christ. The emphasis on Christ always has been and always will be. And the sooner that we get that, the better off we're going to be. It's all about him. So you'll find most English translations translate this, he himself is our peace. There are a few that don't. But the major ones, the New American Standard, New International Version, the ESV, I think the New King James Version, all got this. And they all translated, he himself is our peace. It's all about him. It always has been all about him. It always will be all about him. And if we don't get that, we're not going to get anything. And the sooner we do get it, we're going to be able to get along in our spiritual life. It's not about us. They don't have it up anymore, but uh, uh, several years back there was a billboard out here on 45 that said attend this particular church, one of the largest churches in the world, just happened to be here in Houston, where it's all about you. And I joked with the board at the time, I said we ought to put up a billboard out there that says attend Pine Valley Bible Church where it's not about you. (laughs) Because it's not about, it it shouldn't be about us, it's about Jesus Christ. This whole thing is not about us. Now, we think it is because we live in our own world where we're self-conscious and it's normal to, to, to consider the things from our own viewpoint, our own um, status, but it's not about us. See, Gentile believers are in him, not because of any particular merit on their part, but because of what Christ did. Agreed? Jewish believers are in him, not because of any particular merit on their part, but because of what Christ did. Gentile believers are in him. Jewish believers are in him. Now, what's the common denominator? In him. him. Thank you very much. That's the common denominator. We're in him. So if there's to be any unity in the body of Christ, the emphasis is going to have to be on him and not us, or him and not me. If there's to be any unity, you see the, the direction that Paul's going here. We've got to get that. And if we get it as individuals, we're going to get it as a group. We can't get it as a group before we get it as individuals. Our top priority in Christ, our top priority in life, must be Jesus Christ. Everything we do has got to be filtered through our relationship with him. We've heard this over and over and over again. But the moment that we truly come to grips with it, that our priority in life must be Jesus Christ, the moment that we truly come to grips with it will be a moment, the the moment of a major, a major spiritual tipping point in our lives. When we decide that we're going to trust Jesus Christ, when he is the the focus of our life, then everything else is going to fall into place see it 's got to start with that when we decide that Jesus Christ is the focus in life, our relationships and our marriage are going to be better our relationships with other members of the body of Christ are going to be better our job 's going to work out in a way that it ought to work out we 're going to do better we 're going to do better with our relationships in school. it all dominoes but it 's got to start somewhere and the first domino is to recognize that everything I do in life has got to be done with a view toward my relationship with Christ and what he did for me. It all starts there. Our priority in life must be on Christ. And if it's not on Christ, then we're going to have a very, very difficult time. If my priority is on Christ, then everything else in life comes into focus very nicely. You name it. And, and I, I've had people tell me this before. Well, I, need, I, I know that Jesus says for me to do this, but listen, if I'm going to save my marriage, I better do that. Oh, don't, don't even think that way. If you want your marriage to be as fulfilling as it could be, then put Christ first. If you want your experience in college to be as fulfilling as it should be, then, then put Christ first. If you, want to, if you want to be fulfilled in your profession, what, no matter what that is, Then put Christ first. And it's going to happen. But if my priority is something else, anything else, if I make my wife my priority in life, my marriage is going to fail. Now that sounds odd, doesn't it? But I'm going to tell you that with a straight face. If you as a Christian make your spouse your priority in life, you have made a big mistake. Jesus Christ needs to be your priority in life. And then your relationship with your spouse is going to be aces. But if you put your spouse first, that means you've got her above Christ or him above Christ. Hopefully for me it's a her above Christ, but (laughs) anymore you just don't know. But but, uh, (laughs) if if your spouse is number one in your life, your marriage is not going to be what you want it to be. Your spouse needs to be number two. Jesus Christ needs to be number one. Has to be. He's preeminent. You put anything or anybody else in place of Jesus Christ, what have you just made them? You're God. Exactly. With a little g. You've made them an idol. Jesus Christ occupies the top shelf, or he's not going to occupy any shelf at all. He doesn't take second place. So if we put anything else in a place above Christ, we're never going to achieve the level of maturity that we were designed to. To achieve. Remember back in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see if we're going to to fulfill the ministries that God gives us. Then we've got to put him first. Because otherwise we may be fulfilling ministries that, that we give ourselves. And that's not what we're called to do. If God is first then we don't have to fret. We don't have to have anxiety or even angst about what our future in, in life should be with regard to ministry or really anything else. You know? If we place Christ first, then we don't have to have angst that keeps us up all night long whether I should marry that gal or not, or lady, uh, gal I guess is politically incorrect now, whether I should marry that lady or not, you know, or whether I should take that job or not. If Christ is first, he's going to work it out for you. You understand the principle? So this is what Paul is is reminding us of here. He said, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, I've been brought into the body of Christ, and he himself is our peace. He's number one. It's very important. Now, the Greek term, I'm sorry, therefore our priority in life should be, must be, has to be, Jesus Christ, or we're never going to move past a, a very basic level of immaturity in our Christian life. The second term that we need to spend just a moment on is the Greek term irene. And I put this in red up on the the screen tonight. This is um, the word that's often translated peace, and it does so here, and it's legitimate to do that. But the Greek term irene, in in its broadest sense, means well-being, just a a general well-being. In this context, though, it indicates a lack of hostility and... Don't forget the and here. A lack of hostility and a mutual acceptance between those who were hostile or appeared to be hostile. Now, this is important, so I want to say that one more time. The Greek term Irene here indicates a lack of hostility and a mutual acceptance between those who were hostile or appeared to be hostile. Now, in this case, Jews and Gentiles were hostile. It just wasn't the appearance of hostility. But it's not just a lack of hostility. It's a mutual acceptance. And that's key. And I don't want you to miss that. When we are functioning in unity, it's not just that I don't hate the other guy. Wouldn't we like it to be that way? It wouldn't be that I just act like that other person is not even alive. I'm just going to ignore them altogether. That would be a lack of hostility, wouldn't it? But that's not all that God calls us to do. The type of unity that Jesus Christ, our master, called us to is not merely a lack of hostility. Now just to be transparent with you, sometimes I wish it was that way. Because there are Christians that aggravate the dog out of me. And probably you too. I mean, that's, that's as nice as I can put it. But it's not just that I have to act like they don't exist, or, or just ignore them, or just not—you know—it's not. It's not. I'm not functioning in love if I don't just go pop somebody in the mouth. You know, there, there's more to it than that. Christ demands, as well as a, as the lack of hostility, He demands a mutual acceptance toward one another in His body, in the body of Christ. It's not just a lack of hostility; it's a mutual acceptance. I think I can illustrate this two ways. Bear with me. At this particular moment in time, I don't know when you'll be listening to this tape if you listen to it later, but at this particular moment in time, Israel and Iran are not in an open state of hostility. They're not at war at this particular time. But we can hardly say, given recent developments, that the two nations are at peace. You see the difference? They may not be in open hostility, but we cannot say that they're at peace. Certainly there is no mutual acceptance at at this time. Now, Maybe by the time this tape gets out there will be open hostility, but at least at this moment in time there is uh, no open hostility, but there's not mutual acceptance. And the second way I think I can illustrate this, maybe a little closer to home, I'm told by Christian counselors that this is also often a problem in Christian marriages. I'm sure it's a problem in non-Christian marriages as well, but I'm concerned with with Christian marriages right now. There may be no open hostility between husband and wife, meaning they they may not be throwing things at one another or or saying really nasty things to one another verbally. Um, But at the same time, oftentimes, at least in, in Christian marriages that have problems, there's, there's no real mutual acceptance of one another either. You see, there's no open hostility, but there's really no love either. There's no mutual acceptance either. There's no open hostility, but love left the building years ago. Now, I hope that's not the case with your marriage. But it is the case in many, many Christian marriages. Many, many Christian marriages, the, the couple is going along as if everything was okay. In, in other words, there's no open hostility. They're not fighting. I, there's, there's a lot of times I talk to people and, and they're in serious trouble in their marriage and one of the first things they say is, you know, we never really fight. We, ne- we never really fight. But there's no mutual acceptance. You know what I mean? There's no mutual acceptance. And, and I hope those two things illustrate the point. Now, if we were to try to do this on our own, we can't. We, we would not even come close to making it. But if, if we realize that Jesus Christ, working through his Holy Spirit, that's going to be the empowerment to allow me not just to, not just to desire some sort of uh, leave-me-alone kind of relationship with the other believers in, in the body of Christ. You know, you do what you want, just don't bother me. Okay? That is not what's being spoken about in this passage when it comes to unity. That's, that's a chicken way out. That's a cheap way out. And that's not what Paul is speaking about here. I've actually got to accept them. Now this doesn't mean I have to accept their bad theology along with them. But it means I still have to accept them as someone for whom, I love the way the apostle puts it, someone for whom Christ also died. Interesting. So Jesus Christ is the one who makes possible this lack of hostility and Mutual acceptance, both. And finally, the last little word in this verse is the word I have in red right here, himon, which also means our. He is the peace of us, or he is our peace. Christ is our peace. This doesn't refer to Jew or Gentile. It refers to Jew and Gentile. You see that? He's our peace. We were reconciled to God By the same Lord. We serve the same Master. We worship the same Creator. He's our peace. So, as far as we've gone in this particular passage tonight, if we were to look for a key, something that's fundamental, I would leave you with this, in in terms of just the beginning of this second part of Ephesians chapter 2. And that is the priority of Jesus Christ. We are never going to get anywhere in life, in our spiritual life, until we first recognize that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's top shelf. Anything else that gets placed on that top shelf is idolatrous. And that is the domino that starts all the others of our spiritual life into motion. If we get that right, the priority of Jesus Christ, that the priority in our life must be Christ, that we view everything through that lens, if we get that right, then everything else is going to fall right into place. But if we don't get that right, very little is going to fall into place in our spiritual lives. It's either or. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for the death that Christ died for us. And we thank you for this humbling passage that exhorts us to live consistently with who we are in Christ. Help us to remember that we all needed a Savior equally, that we were all equally spiritually dead, and that we all came to you the same way by grace through faith, through no merit of our own. Uh, Father, help us to live in peace with those for whom your Son also died. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.